Um, everybody, thank you for joining this evening. Welcome to Mic Drop, our 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern call-in show where we're going to be discussing tonight what I refer to as the Latinization of America. As you guys know, I think a lot about the Latino votes. I've spent the past 30 years kind of working on uh, Latino engagement strategies. I want to talk a little bit more about why in a little bit greater detail. Some of you guys who've been following me for a while know uh, some of what we'll be talking about tonight, but I, but I am hoping to look under the hood a little bit more. Um, I did have somebody uh, respond to something I posted on social media today saying, quit saying, sorry about diving so deep into the weeds because that's why we, why we listen to the show. So I'm going to do my best to remember that and give you and not feel bad about getting so far down uh, under, into, the, into the weeds under the hood and give you guys some of these deep explanations. If I do get off topic, guys, there you go, Peggy's saying she, you guys like this stuff. Um, that's why you guys listen in. Uh, if I do get too far off, feel free to just kind of throw in the chat. Not gonna hurt my feelings. I'm, I'm here to, to provide a resource to you guys. Um, and, and Brent also mentioned in the chat also the, the question of the, the book. I, I wanna talk about that right now. And I, I'm gonna talk a little bit more um, than I have in the past. Um, for a couple of reasons. The main one is it's just, it's, it's completely consuming my life at this point. And anybody who, who has um, ever written a book or if you've ever heard about people writing a book saying it's just this, <laughs> this really tough process. Um, I mean, I had heard it, I believed it, but going through it is just something else. Um, I, first of all, I'm enjoying writing. I'm enjoying this topic. And I think it's kind of nice to be able to look back and say, okay, I've had an impact in my life and my career in this area, and I have something to offer. And a great publisher like Simon & Schuster agrees. And uh, Simon & Schuster will be, will be publishing uh, the book, and the book will be available uh, before the, the next presidential campaign. I'm not too exactly sure what the timeline is going to be, but it will probably be in sufficient time to um, have, I think, some sort of a splash and impact um, because the Latino vote is becoming much more important and uh, decisive for both parties who are both struggling with it. I want to talk a little bit more in greater detail um, about some of that tonight. I think you guys probably saw, if you're on social media today, some of the posts I put up. A great Newsweek article from a good friend named Adrian Carasquillo um, from Newsweek, who uh, wrote a great story about Congressman Ruben Gallegos, who I... I I tend to like Ruben. Uh, we've gone back and forth a little bit. He's a politician. I, it doesn't surprise me. They, they all, they're a little sensitive. Um, but a, he's a good guy. I think he's got a bright future. I think he's going to do big things. Um, but he posted an article today, or he, he had a press conference where he made a statement saying, one of the ways to solve the problem that Democrats have with Latino men, with Hispanic men, is to recruit more Hispanic men. And I thought that was really kind of a fascinating thing to say. One is because, thanks, there's a, the article there if you guys want to take a read at it. Um, because he, the biggest demographic problem that Democrats have is with white men. And Hispanic men racially are white men, ethnically Hispanic. But... Can you imagine a white Democrat saying we need to recruit more white men to run for office in the Democratic Party? Like, I'm not too sure that would go over that well. And 
I, I thought it was fascinating that he was able to kind of say that. And everyone was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. For a couple of reasons. And I'm, I'm just going to start riffing the way that I, that I do. But I, I do want you guys to jump into the, the chat kind of uh, earlier because I want this to be a, a lot of questions. I'm hoping I generate a lot of questions here because it's going to help me guide where, where I'm going with this book. Because, what, by the way, the, 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 the working title of, of this book is The Latinization of America. And what the Latino electorate means for the future of democracy, and and it's a real examination on um, on, on how how crazy you have to be to kind of be Hispanic Latino anyway, and, and, and kind of become Republican. And I tell it through, <laughs> thanks Brady. Yeah, I, I, I tell it through the the um, um, lens of my experience in the campaigns that I've done over the past thirty years, because a lot of these are are problems and challenges that I've addressed. Uh, over the course of 30 years, but also because I've had this unique position of being able to um, see how Republicans do this. I think many of you guys know I, I you know, was involved with George W. Bush's efforts in 2000 and 2004, some of the really um, uh, successful Latino efforts back in those years. And I've also been, um, I was also obviously involved with not just the Lincoln Project, but I also was very involved with uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, Antonio Villaraigosa, a good Democrat, who ran the primary against Gavin Newsom. Um, he's a friend of mine. And that, that tends to be how I do races now, is if people are friends, uh, I really don't care about what party you're in as long as you're going to be doing the right thing for the country. Um, and to see how Democrats behave was really eye-opening to me. Democratic voters, the Democratic political consulting class, democratic um, opinion makers, and, and the way the media reacted differently. And so I, I thought it might be an opportunity to, to, to kind of share with, with people who are interested in politics the differences of, of the two parties and, and what that means. Because it, I, both parties, uh, both of them are doing some things right, and, and both of them are really, really missing the mark. And that's kind of where I want to kind of hopefully have some of this discussion on, on where we're going tonight. Before we get started with that, though, I, I have to acknowledge uh, George Santos. I mean, my, my goodness. I, I don't want to take this up too far off topic. Or go. This story gets crazier and crazier uh, by the moment. And I'm worried because I think it's going to get so crazy. Look, first of all, this guy's obviously dealing with some really, really serious issues. I, and I know he's a bad guy. And I know he's, you know, in a, in a party that, that most of this audience is really not going to like. He stole from a dying dog. I, I know. Um, the drag queen stuff that came out today, uh, not that that's problematic. It's just how, how conflicted internally do you have to be where you, you're then within a matter of years running as a Republican, Trump Republican for the United States Congress, like there's, 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 he's, 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 he's struggling and, and somewhere with clearly a lot of trauma early in life, he developed this compartmentalization that, that allows him to just openly lie and, and, and shapeshift as he's needed to, 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 to survive. That's not a justification. And it's also not a psychological analysis. It's just kind of freaking obvious on its face that the dude's just really, really not okay but then to, to put yourself out there that publicly, um, and, and and yeah, there's definitely uh, Russian money that's going to be a part of this. As I've been saying this for a long time. I know Peggy Malcolm Nance's books. I'm not the only one who's been saying it. I'm a little bit frustrated that the media is not connecting more dots. 
Um, and I'll be working on some projects after this book that is going to be focused on the Russian threat, the rise of Christian nationalism, the influence of, of, of a global network funded largely from, from the Russians that has destabilized the United States, funded the regime, uh, the Bolsonaro regime and some of the unrest in Brazil, and also um, throughout Western Europe and the democracies all over the, the place. And, and, and this, again, is not a secret, but um, it just hasn't been connected in a way that I'm, I'm planning on kind of doing some focus, focused efforts on connecting. But having said that, had to, had to get the George Santos thing off my chest because it's this guy is going to implode. It's going to be really, really bad. Um, I'm, I'm talking at, at, a, at a human level. What we're going to see is going to be, I think, very uh, sad, just that there's somebody who, who's, who's, uh, who is so self-loathing that they're not only able to lie but have the need to put themselves in a very dangerous position where they're constantly under the threat of being exposed for something like there's a really deep, deep trauma in there. So anyway, um, and yeah, I think that that's, that's really uh, one of the, the, in the chat room there too, that I think the dog might be more likely to get people outraged. That's one of the things, like I'm an animal lover, like, like all of us are, but guys, this is what, uh, this is a really troubling unhealthy sign of our society is there is such a wide swath of people who love animals more than people. And I'm not saying that animals and all creatures of God don't need to be loved. But when I let me let me and let me break this down to a real practical level here too, um, I don't know how many of you guys have seen like photos of um, soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers, with like they'll find a little kitten out on the battlefield and then he'll become like he's in the tank, or the or guys in foxholes and they'll find a puppy and he becomes like this part of their their troop. Um, these are all orchestrated. That's not really happening. Okay. That is designed to elicit and build American support. That's propaganda, okay? That's Ukrainian propaganda that is being used to build a bond between American audiences and Ukrainian soldiers. That's what that is, okay? If you think all these cute little you know puppies and stuff, I'm not saying it may not happen every once in a while and that some of that stuff is going on, sure, but the amount of what you're seeing is a orchestrated, designed, communications strategy, people, okay? Yeah, you're being manipulated with propaganda. And, and what I will say is this, the, the problem and the point that I'm bringing out is that there's a keen awareness that Americans especially oftentimes have a stronger affinity for animals than they do for other human beings, okay? I'm just gonna say it. It's why this Santos article the line, the final line that's gone too far is stealing from a dead dog, right? Like that, that's too far. Everything else is really bad and really awful, really ugly. But once that happens, like that's going too far. And that's something that I think there just needs to be some self-awareness about. There needs some, there needs to be some inventory taken. Like I said, I don't have an issue um, with loving all of God's creatures immensely as we should. I think that pets especially are, are a great gift to us as human beings, but their hu human compassion, when we lose human empathy as a priority, we start to degrade as people anyway. And that's where, that's where you start to see atrocity. There's room then at that point for atrocity. Once, once we start to prioritize other, other beings sentient or otherwise above, above humans and human compassion. So 
having said that, um, let's get back to the, the, the book and, and, and kind of what's happening with, with, um, with where my head has been completely just uh, drowning and at this point. So um, as, as I've shared with, with you guys, we are undergoing the most profound and significant demographic transformation uh, in the history of this country. We're 250 years into this American experiment and there has always been ethnic differences, always. That's kind of why we developed this, this motto, e pluribus unum. And what that means in Latin, of course, as we all know, is from many one, but it had a very different connotation before the early 1900s. And I wanna explain, explain why. And I, I don't go into this in too much detail in the book because the book is already running in a million different directions. But it's an important history to understand when we talk about diversity in our current vernacular, how different it is now than what we used to talk about in the past. Early on, right, in the early formative years, when, when states like Illinois were the, were the Western frontier, when the Ohio River Valley was still being, you know, when, when pioneers uh, and, and settlers were still making their way out uh, into, into the Midwest as frontier, it was not uncommon to have very distinct ethnic groups, almost exclusively from, from Europe, Western and Eastern Europe, that kept diaspora, that kept their communities largely intact. German Lutherans, for example, in Minnesota, and, and, and uh, but, but there were many, many dozens of them. And what would happen was they would live in these communities in bubbles, in isolated bubbles, and there would be some interaction with the outside world, but not much. There wasn't intermarriage outside of it. It was not a bad thing if they kept their German language and their German dialect for, for generations. Um, it, it, was, it was something that was, it was, it was not only accepted, it was what de Tocqueville really looked at and said, this is, this is very unique in human history. Like all of these people are operating and living under the same government, but they're really keeping their own ethnic identity here. It's quite remarkable. And something happens uh, in, in what we call the progressive era. It was really the rise of Teddy Roosevelt in response in large part to um, a lot of the political corruption at the time of Tammany Hall and at the time of um, the Teapot Dome scandal and the time of the consolidation of industry as corporations start getting really, really strong. And, and, and what happens is there's this awareness that a lot of these ethnic, ethnic groups started to use their ethnicity as a way to um, create political patronage. The Irish, especially in Boston. Now remember, the Irish create a particularly significant problem uh, to, to the United States. And the main reason is because they're Catholic and they're a particularly strong strain of Catholic, right? They're Irish Catholic. And um, there was a huge amount of discrimination against the Irish uh, back in the day, back around the turn of the last century. And, and the way the Irish, one of the ways the Irish fought back were the, the use of, of, of patronage politics in government, winning, winning elected office, and then hiring Irish brothers and sisters to give them jobs, to put them on the payroll, and to start lifting them out of, of poverty, and start moving them out of sustenance wages, and start creating a middle class. Now, this leads oftentimes, not just with the Irish, just with all human beings, it leads to corruption, 
right? Political machines almost invariably lead to political corruption. And so what happens is the Republicans in the, in the uh, this is called the progressive era, the progressive era, they come in as reformers, right? They start railing against the corruption of, of, uh, of, of people who are taking advantage of the public trough. They start railing against the power of corporations. Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, again, progressive Republican, self-described progressive Republican, starts running on breaking up monopolies and, and, and antitrust becomes an issue, breaking up the railroads, breaking up big oil. I mean, he might as well kind of been like Elizabeth Warren, right? It's the same language. Like, let's break up these corporations. Let's break up railroad. Uh, let's break up. Yeah, progressive started with Teddy Roosevelt. That's what I'm talking about. So, so, so Roosevelt um, and Hiram Johnson in California starts the initiative process, the referendum process, and the, um, the recall process. These are all tools that in 1910, the same era, these were Republicans who were saying the system needs reform. And they, they were less Wall Street and more, more, a, little bit, a little bit more populist. They were kind of saying, kind of a drain the swamp argument. And what they did, though, which was unique and very different from today's Republican Party, is they started to add more democracy into democracy. They believed that the way that you fix the system was to give more power, more leverage to the people and break up the concentration of power because the economy was starting to consolidate under a handful of titans of industry, the Carnegies, the, the Vanderbilts, the, the Rockefellers, the Stanfords in California, uh, Leland Stanford, one of our, our governors, obviously founded the university. These, these people consolidated huge, huge wealth, not unlike kind of the billionaire class uh, today. And there is a popular strain in the Republican Party, this anti-tech uh, thing that's, it's a weird, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm not trying to make a comparison, but what I'm saying is there's a populist element where Republicans who are usually kind of the handmaidens of Wall Street are now becoming a little bit more anti-big uh, tech, anti-big Hollywood. Uh, big government is really not even the biggest primary mover anymore. It's just kind of anti-big. And the language is not that dissimilar from what you would hear from a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. Right, these arguments about big corporation and, and big power. So let me get back to where I'm going with this and what that means for ethnic identity. What happens as part of these reforms, though, is the breaking up of these political machines, these ethnic political machines, particularly in the North, uh, New England area. And so what the Republicans come in and start saying for the first time, this is new, right, 1910, 1920 era. They start saying, we need to just all be American. Like, drop the hyphen. You need to leave your ethnicity at the door. You're not Italian-American. You're not Greek-American. You're not Jewish-American. You're not Irish-American. Certainly not Irish-American. You're American. So let's, let's, be, let's create an American nation. And that's the first time in our country's history that we start hearing this kind of language. We, it was never a part of our, our parlance. It was the exact opposite prior to that time. It was actually celebrated, this uniqueness, this... This, this the Tocquevillian era uh, of, of human existence was America for the first 150 years. The, during the progressive era, the progressive Republican era, that changes. And, and, and Teddy Roosevelt starts saying, this, you're not fully American if you're carrying a hyphen with you. And from that moment on, really up until the present day, that characteristic is carried through the Republican Party where Republicans believe that, that we're a melting pot. The, this, the, you've all, we've all heard of the melting pot. That was literally the language that was created in this time, in the progressive era. 
Okay, didn't mean there weren't a bunch of immigrants before. There were tons of them. This was just this was always been an immigrant nation. We just treated immigration very differently. But what happens during the progressive era is everybody develops this idea that we should all become American. And the idea of a melting pot really means if you're gonna become American, what it really means is you're becoming white. Now this is an important distinction. And let me spend a little bit of time on this because it's extremely, extremely important. What do I mean by that? Because Europeans before the United States didn't say we're white, right? They were French, they were Italian, they were Spanish, they were English, they were Irish. They were their own nationalities. No one's like, oh, well, but we're all white. Like that wasn't a thing. They were all very distinct and very different. And they were proud of that. Hell, they went to war over it for thousands and thousands of years. There was no cross-border transnational whiteness. This concept of whiteness emerges in the, in the early 1900s with the melting pot as people, especially Catholics, especially the Irish, start coming into the United States, which is a Protestant country, right? And, and we can talk, maybe I should do an episode on, 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 on how the United States is really, the, the idea of America is really the apex of, of white European Protestant thought. And it's a beautiful thing, by the way. It's the idea of self-governance. It's this idea that we can move further away. If we can move further away from God as Protestants, away from the Catholic Church, if we didn't need a Pope, and we didn't need saints, and we didn't need bishops and all these intercessors, and I could really essentially create my own form of Christianity, my own liking, and I could choose what kind of church I wanted to go to, and I could kind of buy into this theology, and if I changed, I could go over here. Like, that's that's Protestantism. That's right. Like, before that, there was you're, you're Catholic or you were a pagan, right, for, for hundreds of years. And so Protestantism, then, if I can find my own way to God— and I can kind of determine my own identity religiously, I sure as hell can do that through government, right? And so that the, the perfect petri dish, the perfect storm for the foundation of this country of self-governing people is largely a construct of Western European Protestant thought, right? And, and that's also a little bit contrary to what's happening now because, um, as Hispanics migrate here, we all have this kind of stereotypical view for good reason that Hispanics are all Catholics. I'm Catholic, a lot of Catholic background. I'm very culturally Catholic, by the way. Mexican Catholicism is not really theological at all. It's, it's very cultural, okay? And we can talk about those differences too, whereas opposed to other forms of, 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 of Catholicism are much more theological. Mexican Catholicism is very ambivalent. It's just, it's, culture, it's a cultural thing more than it's a theological or religious thing or i should say theological not necessarily religious anyway i'm getting i'm, I'm getting off topic as as one does as i'm getting in the weeds so what, what 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 happens is this this increasing catholicism is is a threat to the protestant ethic like a direct assault on it right it's like it's going back to europeans and and there's this view that that catholics are actually regressing away from the American experiment. And, and, and questions start to be asked is, can, can Catholics really govern a country where the primacy of the individual is central to the whole damn thing, right? Like part, a big part of Catholicism is, is, the, is the 
fallibility of the Pope. You, whatever the Pope says is, right? And, and in government, I mean, <laughs> I'm very careful with what I say here, but in government, when you have an, a, a, an autocratic leader who just, when he says this is what it is, and this is the way it's going to be, and everybody follows, like that's antithetical to democracy. It's antithetical to the American experiment. It's antithetical to the values upon which the country was founded. And so there's this question, right, about Catholicism. Kennedy faces it first, John F. Kennedy. And who's the second Catholic president? Biden, right? Joe Biden goes to mass every every Sunday. Joe Biden is a true working class Irish Catholic. Like it's it's crazy that that's kind of still exists. He's he's like the last of his kind. Especially as a baby boomer by the way, but like he's from he's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, right? He's, he's a kid from Scranton. I mean, he he's he's truly like a blue collar working class Catholic Irish Catholic kid. And you can his mannerisms, the, the malarkey, like the, the the shit he says, the way he is, his perspective of the world is a very Catholic perspective. Okay, set that aside for a second because I don't want to go too far down that road. We get back, we get back to the um, the topic of the progressive era. So we, we, we this this melting pot idea is introduced. Republicans take on this characteristic and they start saying you need to be American which really means you need to be white. And white, um, you know, there, there's different gradations of what white is and what white means, but it's largely an American term. We all know that there are, are and have been differences for millennia between light-skinned people and dark-skinned people, okay? It's not, that, that is not purely an American phenomenon. But what I mean is the ability that you could, you could essentially become white with one great exception, right? Which are black people, but everybody else was kind of viewed as the, you have the opportunity to become more white. So if you're Irish Catholic, even if you're Hispanic, which again is racially white, right? We, 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 we too often use the term Hispanic as a different race. It is, it is not, it is a mixed race. It, it, being Hispanic, being Latino literally means you are part European, you're part white and you're part indigenous. That's literally the definition. And, and that, that, that blend, in, in Spanish we call it uh, mestizaje, that mixture. We are a mestizo race. We're a mixed race. We're, we're mutts. We're these lovable mutts, right? And that has been our survival technique culturally, is this understanding of the racial and cultural nuances of whites and the racial cultural nuances of non-whites. And that is what America is becoming for the first time in its history. It is becoming a non-white European majority country. And that will happen around 2040, meaning by 2040, people of white European ancestry will not be a majority. We will be a minority majority country. And by 2060, I won't live to see that. But by 2060, we will be a um, um, that uh, Hispanics, Latinos will be the largest ethnic plurality. California has already gotten there. California got there a couple of years ago. We became we became a, a majority minority state around 2000, and I think two years ago, maybe a little bit longer, or maybe a little bit earlier, 
maybe somebody can check on that. But more, we, we were taken to uh, 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 Latinos became the largest ethnic plurality. We sit at about 38, 39%. Latinos do in California. Whites are sitting about 34, 35%. African-Americans have remained remarkably solid and consistent since really since the 1920s at about 10 to 11% of the population. And so this changing dem demography is changing our construct of white identity. And, and here's why, and, and here's where it gets really important. Because African-Americans, because blacks have never grown in terms of the size of the population, there was never a real demographic threat of a changing racial narrative in the country. In the deep south, Mississippi, Alabama, you have these very, very large African-American populations, right? You go to the north, especially in the northeast, and there's just very, they're, they're, they're virtually non-existent. But across the entire country, you have had since the mid-1920s, African-Americans at about 10 to 11% of the population, and it's not growing, okay? And the reason why that's important is because if there's no real demographic threat challenging our notions of whiteness and blackness, there's also real no imperative to change much. We have, we have, we have, we have, we like to believe that we changed our cultural sensitivities for those in living memory would say that began the civil rights era with Martin Luther King, whose birthday we just celebrated. Right. But it goes back before that, and we fought a civil war over it, right? We fought reconstruction, right? Jim Crow laws. Like, these are all this, we started with slavery, we fight a civil war, it goes to reconstruction, it goes to Jim Crow, it goes to the civil rights movement in the 60s, and now it's kind of Black Lives Matter, right? And I want to talk about the resurrection of the Black Lives Matter movement and our racial consciousness, because I don't think it's a function of blackness. I think it's a function of brownness, a changing America. And the way we get there is by the threat that brown people are placing or, or, or challenging a white power structure, not politically, not, not at all politically, mathematically, right? If something happens to, to, to communities that are homogeneously white, identified as white, ethnically distinct, ethnically different, Polish, Irish, Jewish, but second, third generation, you went through that melting pot time, right, in the 1910s, Maybe your grandparents, your great-grandparents came, your great-great-great-grandparents came. Some people can take their lineage all the way back to the Mayflower. I mean, like white, 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 right? But white really means losing your ethnic identity. That's what whiteness means in the American construct, largely, right? And that's important because what, we, what was trying to be sold to, to us, Americans, around the time of the progressive era was freedom is what keeps us together. We don't have a common religion. We certainly don't have common food, right? Pop culture is what, pop, literally popular culture is American culture, which is not, is not what keeps human beings satiated very long. I, I know this is a really broad topic here, but I hope, I hope you're following me. Let me check if I'm, if I'm losing my audience. I'm, I'm holding on to a small audience. So let me, let me just keep going with this because I think this is really fascinating. As human beings, we need these anchors in our life, cultural anchors, and we find them in different ways. Historically, we have found them 
this ethnic identity through things like music and dance and food and tradition that we have handed down. And they connected us through a lineage to the ancients, to our ancestors. And there's a promise that we will pass it on to others. And that gives us some sense of, of, of commonality and community in the cosmos. We're not just alone out there, right? The most powerful, the most powerful cultural anchor has historically been religion. It's how we view, how we in our community and our people view our relation as human beings to the, the bigger power that be, that is, okay? And that has manifested itself in a million different ways. Prior to Christianity, it was, you know, paganism or, 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 or different God deity worships through different ethnic or racial tribes as they, as they emanated right? And as they changed. But, but that religion, uh, religion has, is, is one of the most powerful, powerful tools of, of, of human understanding, okay? Of, of who they are in relationship to everything else. And that can, like I said, that, that can manifest itself in a million different ways, right? Christianity is relative newcomer to all of this thing. I'm talking about just how you, how we perceive whether it's the stars with astrology, whether it's you know Wicca, whether it's 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 uh, paganism, whether it's worshiping the sun, whatever it is, right? Whatever we whatever it was that human beings found to 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 make their god to give them some understanding, that anchor is something that human beings need, and culture is something that people need. One of the challenges of America is this idea that if you become more American, you shed your ethnicity. In order to become American, you got to drop the hyphen. You got you to put all that stuff behind you. You leave all those cultural anchors. And the, the sociologists for many years have been concerned about America. And I mean, this stuff is going back into the 30s and 40s during this loss of, of ethnic identity, because what they were saying was, these abstract notions of freedom, we're, we're free. We've got a red and white flag and we have the 4th of July celebration and we eat hot dogs, right? It's like, that's not, that's not, that's not a cultural anchor that human beings need. And what happens to a society that, that requires you lose those cultural anchors that give you that perspective of who you are in the big picture. And a lot of people are saying and have been saying for some time, it's exactly where America is at this moment in time. The United States of America, by the way, suffers whites, by the way, not, not, not ethnic uh, or racial minorities, but whites, okay, have the highest suicide rates in the world, highest obesity rates in the world, uh, huge, huge crisis of, of self-damaging, uh, self-harm. You'll notice that there's oftentimes a demographic uh, consistency with mass shootings. Okay, uh, all of these are signs of self harm. And by the way, these things, these these, these social and self harm characteristics, are only happening in the United States. You're not seeing these numbers get bigger in Europe, Western or Eastern. Okay, it's not happening. It's an American phenomenon. Why? In large part because they, there's no there's no cultural anchor, and the further we get away from leaving these anchors, from leaving these traditions, from leaving um, our, our our 
our ethnic perceptions of community and, and where we belong with other people, the more we feel alone in the world. And that loneliness, we don't do well as human beings. We're meant to be, we're, we're political animals. My, one of my Georgetown professors used to say, and he said, not like all of you political people, you know, like me, who all, you know, came to DC to get in politics. It, it meant we're a social animal. Human beings, our, our, our strongest evolutionary trait is empathy, is, is we, we, we want each other. We need interaction with other human beings. We, we, we crave it as, as part of our DNA. And, and that's how we lifted ourselves up out of the swamp as we were evolving from, we, if we weren't looking out for each other, not because we even loved each other, but because we needed each other and because we wanted each other to survive for companionship, not just help. Th that, that is our strongest evolutionary success, success trait. And anyway, again, way off topic. I'm not, this is not part of the book, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is explore the, the importance of identity because American identity is about to be challenged. In fact, it is already being challenged, and it's part of what we were seeing with the rise of Donald Trump, the movements towards authoritarianism. Um, and, and this is very important. The rise of religious extremism. Okay? Religious extremism is not just happening by accident. It's being fueled by a very well-resourced, sophisticated global operation. I know that sounds like conspiracy theory shit, but if you look at what happened in Brazil, some of the most remarkable photos that were coming after their January 8th attempts to overthrow their government was the amount of people kneeling and praying as this was some sort of a divine effort. Right, that the explosion of evangelical Christianity in Brazil, there's a direct correlation between that and the rise of Jair Bolsonaro. You're seeing the same thing happen in Hungary with Viktor Orban, okay? Marine Le Pen, a nationalist, Christian nationalist in France, runs for the third time for the presidency against Macron in April of 2022, less than a year ago, gets 42% of the vote, okay? This is all uh, uh, Forza Nova in Italy, the far right that has taken over. It's all religious Christian nationalism. It's not all Christian, by the way. A lot of these nationalist religious zealots are starting to work with religious extremists in the Middle East because the aims are the same, which is to topple democracy. And it's all funded by the same well-resourced individuals. But, and this is where I think it gets a little bit interesting, and this is what I do start to explore in the book a little bit more, and that is the idea that Latinos and Hispanics don't have this same claim to nationalism. Okay? Why? It's really important. Because we don't have, we're literally a mixed race people. We are as much European as we're not. People from the new world that have that cultural racial composition, this mixed race people, mestizos, mestizos, mixed race people, it, it, it's, it's a much harder sell towards nationalism when you don't have centuries of a common ethnicity that has developed. The conquest, when the conquest came, the entire culture dramatically changed, not just because 
Cortez and the Spaniards were massacring people, which they were, but really it was smallpox and pestilence that killed 90% of the population, like 90. It just, disease just completely ravaged the new world. With that, all thousands of years of culture and math and science and, 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 and religion as it was, right? It's not a Christian religion. It's not a Jewish religion. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a new world religion, right? These were Mayans and Aztecs. Who, who were worshiping and finding what human beings need, which is their understanding of their place in the cosmos. And the, it, was, it was their religion, right? That was their religion. That was their way of doing it. All of that's wiped out. It's just decimated. And something new is replaced. And what it's replaced with is a mixed race people. So people that can navigate both worlds, but are never completely at home in either. And that is what the United States of America is becoming. And so what happens to a form of government? What happens to a country that was literally founded as the apex of Western European Protestant thought when it's slowly being consumed, as the right-wing conspiracy guys are being worried about the invasion of brown people, uh, by people who have a much more communitarian approach, a much more Catholic approach? There's a reason why Catholicism morphed to work as well as it did in Latin America. And one of those, this is very interesting, this is gonna be a big part of the book, is what I call, the, the title is the Latinization of America, but one of the things that happens with the Latinization of America is going to be the feminization of America. This really scares the right wing, okay? But what, what do I mean by that? So one of the key cultural components and characteristics of Hispanicity or, or Latinidad, which is more important of, Hispanic includes the Spanish, and, and they're not in this because they're, they're Western Europeans, Latinos, right? Of, of, of people of, of mixed race is that there is a strong female-centered culture. The, the feminine is the dominant power. It's the dominant force. All of our narratives, all of our mythology as a young Hispanic kid is based off of, first, the Virgin of Guadalupe, right, is, is literally the national icon of not only Mexico, but all of Central and South America. Can you imagine having a female iconography for the for, for, for the Western world? Like that would never happen. Never happen. Okay? You could never have a fe you could never have a female George Washington as like the head of state. Like we were we were formed and rallied behind a woman. <laughs> like, like it could never happen, right? It would never happen in the United States of America. That's because of the history of it. In Mexico, that's perfectly natural. Like it was just, you know, of course, of course, right? And and, 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 and and all of all of the mythology that we learn is not just the, the Virgin of Guadalupe, which of course is central. It's La, the, 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 the scary stories we learned as kids, La Llorona, uh, Maya Well, the Aztec goddess, uh, the Avelitas that fought uh, with men, the Revolutionary War, um, and on and on and on. So that, like almost all of our mythologies are, are, are told through the perspective of the feminine in Hispanic culture. And that manifests itself politically. So what do I mean by that? First of all, uh, Hispanics have the largest gender gap. You hear about the gender gap all the time, men and women voting differently, women more Democrat, men more Republican. Um, that's true. Um, it's gotten bigger over the past five or six years. Uh, it is the biggest amongst Hispanics. Hispanic women and Hispanic men are voting very differently. And and that's also manifesting itself in representation electorally. Now, this is really fascinating. If you look at the composition of state legislatures, 
the number of Hispanic women, the ratio of Hispanic women to men in places like California, there are more Hispanic women than there are Hispanic men. And you're like, okay, well, that's just California, right? Because California is quirky and it's weird and it's just, you know, different place. No, no. Texas, it's almost at parity. Florida, it's almost at parity. New Jersey, I think there's 10 Hispanics, nine are women. So there's this, there's, it's not just an overrepresentation. It's, it's, it's really getting towards basic parity, if not more women in elected office than men. So Hispanic women are accomplishing within one generation what non-Hispanic white women, white European women, have been trying to do since suffrage 100 years ago and not very successfully, which is get women elected to office. Hispanics overwhelmingly are sending, more than any other racial or ethnic group, more and more women to elected office. And it's because the idea or the concept of having women lead our communities, our neighborhoods, our families in civic engagement is not only not foreign to us, it's, it's common practice. It's almost expected. And so political leadership from the feminine perspective as part of Hispanicity or, or Latinidad, I should say, it's not Hispanicity, of, of Latino culture is very commonplace. And it really does run back to old world religions where women deities, right, the religion that, they, that was created was really all feminine. The, the, the planet was Mother Earth, of course. That's not terribly uncommon. But all the deities of water and fire and time um, were, were, had very, um, if not completely exclusively, dominant feminine characteristics and very, very strong feminine strain. So anyway, again, I don't go that deep into the history. Just want to provide it for you guys here on Mic Drop. But I want you to know that as more and more Latinos become a bigger and bigger part of the population, you're going to see more and more women elected to office. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, let, let me say one other thing. Don't, don't let me forget that, though. I want to get back to that, because I'm going to close the loop here with this. There is also, if you look at the polling, I just finished this massive chapter on polling, guys. And I went through everything from abortion to immigration to healthcare to same-sex marriage, legalization of marijuana. It wasn't that hard for me to do, because I've been doing this for 30 years, and this is what my trade is. But the research and, and quantifying all the work it was was a lot, okay, a lot. Like, I'm, like I'm out. I'm a lot. So I finally finished this, this chapter. I'm moving into kind of the, the mid-later chapters of this book. And um, what becomes really clear to me for the first time is I'm doing all of this work, not just on one issue and one campaign, but laying out the mosaic of what all of this is, is that um, his, Latinos, uh, first of all, the, 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 most, the, the, the easiest way to determine political attitudes amongst Latinos. We, we always say it's not a monolith, right? Some are born here, some are born there. The truth of the matter is country of origin is not that big of a differentiator except for the Cubans. And I'll talk about the Cubans in a second, okay? But the, 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 if you set aside the Cubans, the rest of the Hispanic Latino origin people, they're not terribly different. But what is different, where you start to see very significant differences in political opinion is generationally is those that are recently migrated and recently naturalized have a very different set of political views than their children. And those two are very different than their grandchildren. Very, all three of them. So if, if you give me like a, a blind taste test, like Pepsi and Coke, remember back in the day for the old people like me? If you, if you told me how this person 
believed on an issue set, I could tell you with 85% certainty whether they were immigrants themselves, the sons and daughters of immigrants, or the grandchildren of immigrants. They're that stark. They're that different. Those that come here most recently naturalized, the people who migrate here, become citizens and start voting, are the most culturally conservative. This is the stereotype that Democrats both love and hate. They've, they've hated it because they thought, okay, these are, these are the culturally conservative Catholics that we don't want to really talk about these issues with. But they're also the border-crossing immigrants that we want to say that we love and that Republicans hate. And so the, there's been this conflict in the Democratic Party on how much engagement and, and ownership of these issues they wanted to engage in. The irony of it is that the second generation, and if you look at all the Latino politicians in America today, 80% of them are the sons and daughters of immigrants. That's just happening demographically. It's a math thing too. They are far, far more progressive on cultural issues, oftentimes more centrist on economic issues than their parents were. By the time we get to the third generation, and this is Gen Z folks, these are English dominant, don't speak Spanish. They have a hat tip to their cultural affinity. They know they're Latino. They're proud of it. They've probably never been to Mexico. They've probably never been to Central America. They've probably never been to South America, but they know who they are, but they are not Spanish speakers. And they certainly don't have an affinity to the immigrant experience. These are not people who are worried about border issues or immigration issues that the Democrats continually rally on an issue that is speaking to the smallest segment of the voter base within the community. This is the mistake the Democrats make. And they try to use that as a turnout mechanism when it doesn't work. If you look at any poll of Hispanics, immigration is never in the top five issues. And that's not a surprise to Latinos. It's just a surprise to white people going, well, you're all Latinos, so you're obviously worried about, you know, immigration. You're worried about, you know, building a wall. You're worried about kids in cages. Well, no more than you are, no more than you should be, right? You should be worried about kids in cages and, and breaking up immigrant families because it's a human concern, not necessarily an ethnic or racial concern. It doesn't mean there isn't a, a, somewhat of a more of an affinity, because there is, but it's not measurably bigger than it is with any other group. And, and this is where the Republicans make the mistake, is they fall back on the old trope that they did have since the 1910s, is, why don't you quit being Hispanic American and Mexican American and just be American? And that's a real oversimplification because again, what that really means is, and, and, and take a deep breath when I use this characterization, what they're really saying is be more white. And that doesn't mean white skinned. It means white in terms of letting go of that history, letting go of that ethnicity, letting go of that historical reference to where you came from and start being like us start because when people are saying just be more american they're basically saying be more like me <laughs> right that's that's what they're saying they may not even know it but that's that is what they're saying is and 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 then there's a the mythology behind that right anybody can be anybody can be an american really i mean i suppose technically but does everybody really have a seat at the American table? Ask our black brothers and sisters. How American, how American are, are our black brothers and sisters when after 20 years, 20 generations, right? Black people have been here since the 1600s as slaves. 
how long does it, is it going to take before they're actually fully engaged as Americans? Because they're not. We all know they're not, right? So let's let's stop with that, right? Anybody can be anybody can come and be American, yeah. Unless your people were brought here in chains, and we kind of you know make these excuses about your inability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and then blame you because you're not able to do it because we destroyed your family, we erased your ethnicity, we took everything away from you, and left you uneducated to not only not fend for yourself but brought you on as indentured servants, which are basically slaves to continue this process and this legacy. And yet we, we anyway, I'll stop with the diet chart. But that, my point is, there is this dividing line between race. And where, where Democrats really fail, really fail, is this belief that if you're not white, then you're a form of black. What do I mean by that? This is what Mike's getting really controversial here. What I mean is, whites have this, 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 um, uh, white progressives, by the way, white conservatives are basically like, I don't give a shit, right? I don't give a shit. Suffer. White progressives are like, well, wait a second. We've got to make amends here. We've got to do, we've got to do what's right through government power to do everything that we possibly can to right this wrong. Except, I don't want to do any shit that affects me. Okay, because I don't want like affordable housing in my neighborhood. We don't want that. Let's not get crazy, right? Let's do something. Let me let me use the right terminology and, and the right woke stuff. I hate that term woke, but I get it. I'm gonna get it. You have to get it. Let me do all of these things that show that I care and that I give a shit, except for anything that's gonna impact me or impact my kids. Okay, because that that's we're not, we're not gonna do that. Okay, that's that's let's not get crazy. I'm not gonna do that. And that, that's, that really defines kind of the, the white progressive. I'm not saying all, but I'm saying a lot, right? And I've learned this from elections, right? Is white people vote for white people. Latinos vote for Latinos. Black candidates tend to vote for, for black candidates. Is that all of them? No. Barack Obama got elected. He wouldn't get elected with a black vote. He got elected with white voters, right? Kamala Harris, right? These are people that, you know, there, there are, of course, there are exceptions, right? Tim Scott, Republican, got a, so we've got the most diverse, by the way, the most diverse, racial and ethnically diverse Republican House conference in the history of the party. Okay? That's, you know, that's that, there's a reason for that. And part of that reason gets me into this last part of the diatribe. And then um, there aren't any questions. So uh, we're, still, we're still keeping a group here. So you guys must be finding this somewhat interesting. Sorry, I'm just, it's hard when not getting feedback. I don't know if, I, if I'm talking to a, 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 a closing room or not. So um, what most of my work has really studied and focused on was this question as to whether or not this growing Hispanic part of the electorate that is really rapidly reshaping the contours of the country, is it going to be politicized as a, a unique, aggrieved ethnic minority? Or is it going to follow a traditional assimilative path of most immigrant groups in our country's history, okay? That's the foundational question really as to whether or not the American experiment is going to continue the way that we have known it. Because if you do have this large voting block that is getting bigger, Hispanics surpassed Blacks in 2020, right? Just happened two years ago. And it's going to start growing exponentially now, okay? As this happens, is it 
coming together as a block, seeking to address past injustices? Is it seeking to use the power of government to, um, to advance its own tribe's interests? And one of the great ironic things, and I've been studying this since I was a young man in the early 1990s, um, was it never occurred to me that as whites started to shrink as a part of the electorate, as part of the population, that they would start behaving as an aggrieved racial minority, which is fucking fascinating. There's going to be a lot of books, by the way, written on whiteness. On the, all this concept that I just talked about, as whites start getting more violent, as whites start getting more insurrectionists, as whites start this white lash to, the, to a changing America, there is a very strong sense among a wide swath of white Americans that if America is not a white Christian nation, it's not America which is probably the most anti-American thing you can think of because if you believe America is an idea and you believe that we're all endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, then that's neither Christian nor is it patriotic or nationalist or American. Like it's antithetical to everything that we've all told everybody that we believe. It's all been bullshit. And that's the Republican Party today. It's all been a bunch of bullshit. And I, I believed in these notions. I believe that as this transition was moving forward, that the goal to continue this 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 shining city on a hill, right? This this American ex experiment, this this idea that a truly pluralistic society could come together and their ideas, their common commitment to self-governance and to a representative republic was bigger and stronger than any nationality. I believed that. I believed that. That was what compelled me and brought me to the Republican Party, right? That's what this guy was saying, right? That's what dude was all about, is what he's saying is, no, unless we are all equal, then it's not American. It's not America. It's not, as, as long as we're not meeting certain, not, not, not equal in terms of outcomes, equal in terms of the eyes of the law and, and society, right? We're never going to fully get there because we're human beings, but that's what America's goal is to be is how do we continue to get there? And what I'm finding out is the Republican Party doesn't believe that anymore, okay? If it ever did, okay? I think I may have been in a really small lane the entire time, but it, does, it doesn't believe that. It certainly does not believe that anymore. What it believes that unless it's preserving this traditional this traditional, and, and by the way, this is important too, with everything that I just said on ethnicity and culture and religion, the Republican Party is trying to hold on to this mythical notion of conservative traditional family values steeped deeply with Christian nationalism, Christianity, in, the, in, in all its various Protestant forms that America has, like 2,000 different Protestant sects, right? Pick your own religion, but they broadly call it the church, right? And it's steeped heavily in that notion because that's the common thread that this demographic needs. It needs it as much as any other ethnic group in the history of human beings since we stood up on two legs and started walking around. It needs to have those answers. And it's looking back to a mythical time that never existed and said, Boy, if we just had traditional families and more people went to church and we put more God in schools, we would be fine. The truth of the matter is America is fine. <laughs> this new emerging America that is browner and gayer and whatever is fine. 
It's, it's truer to the American idea that we were founded on than at any point in our history. That's the great irony of all of this, right? That's the challenge. And so again, all of these notions of American identity and the racial construct that we don't have a good vernacular for, because we've always talked about race in terms of black and white in this country. It's the only way we know how to talk about race. And it's why I think there's, let me get back to that point. That's why there's this new racial reckoning that has been catalyzed with the Black Lives Matter movement. Here's another controversial position. And I'm going to say this in the book. There would have been no Black Lives Matter movement in any meaningful, sustained way if you didn't have an increasingly significant Hispanic population. Unless whites felt that they were losing something and losing ground when Tom's hardware store becomes La Fiesta Mexican food, right? And suddenly they're watching these commercials and there's these Mexican families instead of white families. And you start calling in for help at the utility company and says, press one for English and two for Spanish. And people are like going, what the fuck? This, this is America. Speak English. Be white, right? Let go of that shit. We don't want that here. This is America. You want that? Go back to where you came from, right? That's that's what the what they're holding on to because there's such a tenuous cultural anchor in America anyway. We don't have a common ethnic code. We don't. Even in our Christianity, if there's two thousand different forms of freaking Christianity, you want to, you want to create your own idea of what Christianity is. Get online and say, this is what I believe in. I guarantee you there's a church out there. And if there's not by any chance, you fucking create a new one. Like that's, that's American Christianity. That's Protestantism, right? It's like, I'm not making a, a jab at it. I'm just saying that's anchorless. That's not what human beings are looking for. They're looking for their own community of structure. And when you don't have that, you become destructive, Ethnic culture is what we use as human beings. Literally, write this down. Another controversial statement. Culture is what human beings used to prevent themselves from killing each other and themselves. And if you don't fucking believe me, take a look at what is happening at America in 2023. If you don't think young white men, especially, are killing themselves and others, you're not paying attention to what's going on. That's the end game of all of this. That's when all the cultural anchors and too much nothingness consumes us as human beings. That's the end result. That's what happens. And what uh, and part of that end result is if we don't stand for anything or have anything that unites us, we let's start standing against things. We can find common ground by being against the Mexicans and against the Muslims and against the trans and against the gays and against Antifa and against the Chinese and against the communists and against and against and against and against. And so what you then find is these common threads that aren't really even threads. The fact that the fact that membership or affiliation with evangelical Christianity fucking increased in the Trump era tells you it's not about Christianity in any conventional terms, right? It's about cohesing against a common threat. And that, that, that coalescing of whiteness in the way I described it doesn't mean English, Irish, 
French, it means a lack of ethnicity. That cohesiveness is finding its commonality by what it's against. It's that negative partisanship on steroids. And that is that demographic is tearing down the American institutions because it believes, here's the kicker, then I'm going to take questions or just go home. It believes that America has already failed because they see the demographic change coming, whether it's society's acceptance of gay couples or whether it's a Hispanic quinceanera dress shop opening up down on Main Street in Des Moines, Iowa. Whatever it is that is not, not what they have grown up with, that sense of loss is saying, if it ain't ours, if it ain't us, if it ain't me, then let's destroy it. And that's why the Republican Party has devolved almost entirely into a cultural war. It's fighting, it's fighting modernity. It's fighting the arc of progress. It's fighting the inevitable change that human beings go through socially as we change and as we transform and as we grow. James, unmute, brother. Thanks for rescuing me there. I've got to drink a little bit of water. Ah, you were very interesting, so I don't think that's why anyone wanted to interrupt you. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy New Year, brother. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, you too. You too. I missed the last show or two. I had some family things going on. Um, so you make me. So the big question I have, out of all you said, it's like, all right. So how do we? And I don't know if there's anyone has an answer to this. It's like, how do we solve this? Um, yeah. Like, for example, my own family. It, they confuse me sometimes, but um, I think most families do that, right? Um, I'm with my sister the other day, and she's, she's extremely caught up in the nostalgic, all right? So your point before that you were making about, like, you know, uh, in history, they force you to, to be American, give up all that other stuff. Well, just from just the one thing that popped in my head that you said was, even though I mean, my family's been here through my mother's side back before the Revolutionary War. Right. Um, in fact, we got pictures of Civil War people and, you know, still. But anyway, but my father's side, not so much. You have the, it's Italian and Irish. And oh, they always identified themselves. You know, they always knew in their heart they were American. And my father fought in the Second World War and, and all that. They always threw in that you know, the Italian part to remind us we had Italian heritage right. and remind us of the Irish heritage. Right. You know? um, but with all that said, my, back to my, my sister's like all nostalgic for when, when she was a kid. Oh, yeah. Because she grew up in a, a city in New Jersey called, we, we grew up in North Bergen and Jersey City, which is yeah. very urban. Yeah. Right. Um, that's where I kind of get my accent a little bit from there. If you haven't picked up on that. Picked up on. Uh, <laughs> um, and she's talking about how, oh, we used to be able to leave the doors unlocked, you know, and, and didn't have to worry about, you know. She starts talking about how crime is now. And uh, and uh, then she gets on to this uh, bit about, um, you know, she doesn't understand why um, uh, black people 
want reparations. Those were the, our ancestors. I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't alive then, which, of course, in my head, I go, that's pretty racist. But, you know, she's my sister. So, you know. Yeah. So I'm listening to her. and I'm and, But in the bottom line is it's just all fear. It's all fear. Uh, that's the way I see it. I see this stuff going on in the country with what you're saying with whites. You know, um, you know, it's fear. It's yeah. fear of giving up control. Um, but, and my sister's kind of like an oxymoron because her grandchildren, two of them are half Filipino. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So it's yeah. like, I always say to myself with her, it's like, how do you square that? <laughs> what does she say? Huh? What does she say? Well. How does she square it? She doesn't. She doesn't square it. She goes, well, they're my grandchildren. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're your grandchildren, but they're half Filipino. Right. So, you know, and a lot of if you were to just talk to anybody on the street, another white person, especially a racist one, they're going to consider them not white. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, look, I think part of the question here, if there is a question, is. Yeah, the question is, is how do we, how do we square how do we, it? How do we how do we console or, or bring them back to reality? That's the question. That's that is the right question. And I'm going to give you my answer. And I don't know if you're going to like it. Okay. The answer is we don't. We don't. And the reason why the reason why is because it, it, it's it's what they're doing and what they're experiencing is not uh, it's biological. If you look at as if you look at communities that have been uh, have per, have perceived their loss of status. If you look at, for example. Uh, Southerners after the Civil War, Russians after the fall of the wall, Aztecs after being conquered by the Spaniards. Conquered people, and that's basically what they're feeling, right? And they use this language. There's a war. We're being invaded by these brown people. They, they, they become kind of angry and destructive. They're also very pessimistic about the future, right? They, they see kind of the worst. If we could only go back to the way things were, when there were no crime and blacks knew their place, you know, it was really what they're saying, right? Yeah. Then, then, you know, if they just stayed in their communities and didn't bother us and everybody was safe, you know, um, what, what we're, one of the chapters, one of the working chapters I have, I don't know if it'll, it'll make the cut or not, but it's called Two, Two Decades of Fire. I've talked about this a little bit on the show. It, it, the way I see it, and again, I'm not sure this is a good answer for you, but I, I believe it. If demographic, Demographically, this has to just work its way through. Yeah, I, I didn't think that there would be this white regression, but we're seeing it, and whites are behaving like an aggrieved racial minority. The irony is, whites, as they're becoming a minority, are behaving the same way that they were critical of, of Black Americans for so many years. When when she was a kid, she would be like, "What are you upset about? What's the big deal? What's the problem?" Right now, people say that to her, and she's like, "What are you talking about? Like this is America. It's not the way it's supposed to be." And so the, it, it's it's like there's this role reversal that has taken place. But yeah. my point is, demographically, you have an emerging America. At the same time, I talked about this destructive white America that's tearing down our institutions, that's literally having insurrections and storming Congress, literally lying about the outcomes of elections. Like, it doesn't give a shit about the truth of elections anymore. Why should they? They feel that it's being taken from them anyway. They legitimately believe that America has been invaded and stolen from them. 
It's all the illegals that came that have stolen America for us. So why don't we just steal it back? That's that's the mentality that nobody is really saying out loud, except for in the kind of dark corners of these rallies. But that's what they're really fucking saying. Excuse my language. My yeah. Right. And so and so that's that's what's driving that sentiment. And I don't think you can fix that. I think I think and this is why I call it two decades of fire. It takes 20 years of highly politicized environment, increase in political violence. You guys all saw the story about this Republican in New Mexico. Yes. Who was committing violent acts against Democrats. Right. Claiming yeah. election was stolen from like that. That's that's becoming commonplace because. They are they are fueling this rage that I'm talking about. Like these are not one offs. It's all happening for a reason. And so the answer is you're gonna have to outlast it. And the great irony is I am gonna write this this part in the book. There's a foot race going on right now. And this is a beautiful statement about America, by the way. Is all of those people who for 12, 15 generations, white people who have had the benefit and the privilege and the luxury of all America had to offer as they are losing their place, perceived place in stature in American society and are destroying it on the way out, there is an emerging blacker and browner America that is going to be fighting to preserve the institutions, wait for it, here's the beautiful part, Mm -hmm. the institutions that they were never fully a part of anyway. It's, yes. it's, that's the hope of America. It's like, even though I've never had a full seat at the table, I'm going to still protect that table while you're lighting it on fire and trying to destroy it so none of us can have a table because that the hope of being able to do something with it is compelling me to preserve and protect a government and a system that has never, never allowed me to be fully at home in it. That's beautiful. I'm with you on that. I mean, it's irrational because I keep saying to my, not that my sister wants to be violent or any of my other relatives. I haven't heard them go off the deep end. But when I see all this stuff going on, it's like you want to go back. But the reality is whatever you get is not going to be that. Yeah. And not only that, but the the problem with, with, and look, I don't think that they'll ever be violent, but the, the problem is, the worst part is when they're like, I'm, I would never be violent. I would never storm the Capitol, but I kind of get where they're coming from, <laughs> right? right? That's, right. that's the dangerous part. Those, right. those are the people that we need to be scared shitless of because the, they're just going to stand by and let it happen. Those are the appeasers. Those are the enablers. Those are the yeah. appeasers. And you've heard yes. me rant up for two years. I'm not afraid of the, I'm not afraid of the insurrectionists. I'm not afraid of the racists. I'm not. I'm not afraid of the extremists. I'm afraid of the enablers. I'm afraid of the appeasers. Because right. they allow that shit to happen. If they would just stand up and say, stop, it, w- it would be over like that. Germany, World War it, II. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's written throughout all the pages of history. It's all there. The, the people yeah. we need to be worried about are the silent ones, not the ones doing it, right? right. Well, there is. There's, there's, there have to be enough people to stand up and say, no, that's wrong to shut it down. What's happened since 2016 is, first of all, the the extremes have gotten more emboldened, but it's also, you've seen a real shuddering silence by the people around them, which has enabled, it's given it oxygen. That's the danger. Yeah, 
James, thanks, brother. I appreciate the uh, the question as always. Thanks for coming to the show and have a have a great New Year, Melissa. You're up. Go ahead and uh, unmute. Hear me? Hey, can you hear me? Yes. How are you? Okay, I, I was on. I have a an infant in the room, so I'm trying to be quiet oh, here. Oh, <laughs> quiet. No, it's okay. I hope I wasn't scared, scaring um, the little one. Yeah, no, I have two two little ones here. Um, so so Mike, I've been following you now for you know a couple months here, and um, uh, in you and and the podcast Latino Vote too that you have. Um, yeah. I'm I'm Puerto Rican, New Yorkian from New York City. Yeah. And um. I just, I have a couple of questions and I, you know, I'm so excited about this book, but um, now that I have you here, I just, I come from a family. So I, I'm from New York City, born in 1980, came from an evangelical background, but a progressive evangelical background. Born in when New I'm, York? I'm born in New York City. So I'm New Yorican, um, you know, AOC area i'm from east harlem but aoc area jennifer lopez that kind of like identity i got it yeah, yeah. new york new york puerto rican new york democrat yeah, yeah. yeah new york where, democrat. where are your parents so, are, you, are your parents from new yorkers too my yeah my mother was born in east harlem my grandparents came in the 50s so post-world war ii migration and then my dad was born in puerto rico you still um, have family on the island yes yes okay, okay. um so one thing i guess like I always assumed that Latinos were going to be solidly democratic, you know, that that post-civil rights coalition, you know, we're, we're with the, the African-Americans or with the Asians. This is a struggle together. Like that's was like my world, even though we were evangelical, we also we were progressive. So I guess my my question is now what I'm seeing. And I was just so shocked by the number of evangelicals, people that may have grown up with me that were moving more to the right. And I and I don't know if that's you mentioned the other day you were talking about, you know, the Russian um, influence of this. But I guess like my question is, like, what have you seen in terms of maybe Puerto Ricans, Puerto Rican evangelicals moving to the right? Like, is is this. Like what's influencing them? I see a lot of misinformation online. Um, that, that's, that's a huge part of it. Okay, and, and we, let me talk about that a little bit. The misinformation online is is it's a problem in English. It's out of control in Spanish. <laughs> and, and the reason why, and I don't know if you're talking about Spanish or English, but, uh, both. but because- you, Yes, both. Yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, on, on WhatsApp, uh, and and other uh, you know phone applications, Latinos over-index, by the way, on on mobile phones and mobile technologies. It's a younger constituency, so it's really easy to influence using really sophisticated propaganda techniques and misinformation campaigns, uh, in, in in communicating into the 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 United States media bubble. There's no way to regulate it. Like that's one of the things. I'll be talking about a lot as soon as I get this book done is there's the, the Russian stuff that we saw in um, 2016 and 2018 and 2020. I thought firsthand with the Lincoln project, just how significant it was. It, there's no way to stop it. Like we used to, you know, you, you could back in the day, you could be like, okay, don't run a radio ad. Don't run a TV ad. 
like with social media and the internet, there is no way, there's no way to police it unless the platforms themselves police it. And we've already seen that there's no way Facebook is going to, going to police their, their, um, their platform, which takes me. And by the way, if you have TikTok on your phone, <laughs> I, I mean, you're, you're, you should not have TikTok on your phone. And you, TikTok is, is ubiquitous now. Okay. That is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous platform because you've given all of your data to the Chinese. And if you think the Russians are, are, are sophisticated players, the Chinese are way more sophisticated. Let me just give you the, let me, let me just, let me just use this. And I'm sorry about the sidebar, Melissa. I'm going to answer your question specifically. I write in great detail on this in the book. Okay. So I, I will answer to this, but let me say this. What the Russians were doing is they were buying Facebook ads and using advanced analytics to move public opinion. That's what I do on campaigns. Okay. They have unlimited resources that are completely unregulated. When I do it for a campaign, I have to tell the government who gave me the money, where I spent it, and who my vendors were so that they can track the inflow and the outflow of the money. That's the way we set up the system. The Russians aren't doing that. They're sitting on, in troll farms all over the, the world now, and they're buying ads and they were moving ads and, and creating stuff on everything from Pizzagate to now it's Hunter Biden. Uh, they, they were running the drill on COVID. That was all, all the anti-vax stuff, not all of it, 95% of it is all fueled by Russian money. So if you've got somebody, a friend on Facebook that is like, oh, this 24-year-old athlete died, and if you do your own research, I'm just putting it out there. All of that shit is brainwashed from Russian money. 95, 98% of it, okay? All the anti-vax movement has been steeped with Russian money, and they're really, really, really good at it to the point where they got Donald Trump elected. They got George Santos elected. They know what they're doing, and they have more money than most of our campaigns, Okay. This is probably the next book I'm going to work on. So set that aside for a second. That's how good the Russians are. But the Chinese, as I just mentioned, the only way you can regulate what the Russians are doing is to get Facebook and Twitter to, to play ball with you and the government and say, these are ads that we should be running anti-vaccine ads. Like we need to stop that. Okay. And they slowly and begrudgingly do that because they're making gazillions of dollars because it's Russian governments and the oligarchs spending hundreds of millions of dollars and it's a huge ad revenue machine for them. Follow? You guys yes. following? A little thumbs up? Okay, sorry, you're on mute. Here, here, so what I said is the only way to, to, to regulate that is the platform. You have to have Facebook working with the government. What if you're a bad government and you own the platform? That's TikTok, okay? That's TikTok which all of our kids are on. All the young people are all on TikTok. All old people are on it too. It's, a, it's freaking addicting, right? That, but TikTok is, is not only gathering the data from all your other apps, right? And they're building profiles, which is the real value of these, is using all the data and all the analytics to build profiles on all of us. But what they're doing is once we're on the platform, they've got a more direct line to us than our own government does. That's what the Chinese built. The Chinese built the platform. That's how smart they are. That's the long game that they're playing. And if you don't believe me, 
Watch what happens when there are tensions rising in the South China Sea and Taiwan starts to come under direct threat, which is what the Russian movement in the Ukraine is about. And the Donbass is to create that opening for the Chinese to move in the North China, the South China Sea. Okay. Once that happens, the entire communications platforms of the United States is going to dramatically freaking change. What we saw in 2016, when the Russians got a president elected, is a fraction of what we're going to see when the Chinese start moving and communicating very directly on TikTok. And it's not going to be just on the TikTok platform. They have your data. If you have TikTok on your phone, they have all your data. They, they are going to be able to message and communicate into you in a way that the U.S. government not only does not have the capacity to do it, it doesn't have the legal ability to do it, and it won't do it. It won't counter it. It won't because it's not in our DNA. Our government doesn't do that. The Chinese are like, well, I don't give a shit. This is a war. That's what's going to happen. That is the next logical sequence of this whole thing. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, Mike, because I, I work with um... – Latino college students. And one of the things we try to do is get them engaged. Like we don't try to influence like what their politics are, but we try to get them to care about this, especially, you know, you mentioned before about generational changes. Um, a lot of our students, their parents are undocumented, but they're citizens. Right, right. Yeah, are they they were they dreamers or did they come over with with citizenship? Well, it depends, right? Both. A, a lot of them were born here. Uh, a lot of them were were born here, but came. They, some of them have DACA and some of them don't have DACA. So yeah, yeah. they're they're dreamers. Some of them be, they were able to get it, their the applications in before the Trump administration stopped that. Um, but so let me talk real quickly about the what, your original question, which is kind of the elements of this this rightward shift with Latinos with Hispanics. The first deals with this misinformation, and that's not terribly big, but I can tell you where it's happening. If you look at Hispanic or uh, Hispanic and Spanish-speaking dense precincts, you're seeing the largest shifts there. Miami, Dade, South Florida, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, Southern New Mexico. Why? Because the openness of those apps and the lack of regulation in Spanish mediums is created this massive opening. The Russians don't just speak in Russian and English, right? They've got very sophisticated actors using all the languages in the world to create division in the United States. Our systems, our regulatory systems, the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission, they're not doing anything in Spanish. They've never done anything in Spanish. They're not even watching. So if nobody's watching, you're seeing foreign actors dump tons of money on misinformation. That's one. The second is, and this is the important piece, and if we have more time, I'd love to talk to you, with you more about this because I have a very large section on this, evangelical Christianity. Evangelicalism, the connection between evangelical Christianity and republicanism is very, very correlated. White, and then somebody asked in the chat earlier, let's talk about the difference between white evangelicals and black evangelicals and then brown evangelicals, right? White evangelicals are the, were the strongest support base for Donald Trump something like 80%, like astronomical numbers. Evangelical Christians, self-identified evangelical Christians, overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump. We can get into like how and why and that guy and you know what does that really mean about Christianity. Set that aside for a second because it's not, in my view, about Christianity. It's about nationalism, which has been successfully fused between the two over the course of the past few decades, okay? 
So the point is, if you're not Republican, you're not really Christian. Like they're, they're one of they're one and the same. The Democrats are are are, are they're 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 the devil. They're what's wrong. They're they're the influences of 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 evil. Okay. So so that's that that creates a huge tension. You'll notice black evangelicals, by the way, do not vote Republican. The black evangelical bubble, blacks and whites in the evangelical and the Protestant world don't go to church together. That's that's one of the really fascinating fucked up things about American <laughs> Protestant religions. Like I, when I started realizing, oh my God, like first AME church, right? The Southern Baptist Conference conference literally started in large part, not entirely, but in large part because of the schism that happened in the Civil War because the Baptist, Southern Baptists were like, no, we're slavers. We have a Christian right to enslave people. Let me say that again. Or my Christianity gives me a right to enslave other human beings, right? Like that is steeped in the culture of a lot of American Christian sects. And I, I different topic for a different day, but the, the, what's fueling this religious extremism is scary, scary shit. And what we're seeing is Latinos, like on most issues, are in the middle. We're in the middle. And this is both the promise and the pitfall of the Latinization of America. The promise, again, is a mixed race people, is a people with not fully at home in either culture, but understanding and having a foot in both cultures has made us, at least on paper, a relatively moderate vote. But I wrote, I wrote a really, I thought, a very, I wrote a really interesting piece. I thought I wrote a piece on what AOC, for example. AOC is, is she new, is she Puerto Ricanian? Colombiana. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting used to this, <laughs> um, Sorry, this yeah. system, but she's Puerto Rican. She's Puerto Rican. Yes. Okay. So she's Puerto Rican. Hablas español. She speaks Spanish? Yes. Okay. So she's Puerto Rican, went to Boston College, I think, college educated. Um, I would say been here forever, but she's American or people have been American. They're, of course, they've been here for forever, right? Now, look at what Myra Flores won. Myra Flores was a Mexican immigrant, Spanish dominant, evangelical wife of a border patrol agent in the Rio Grande Valley, America first Republican. Which one of those are more Latina than the other? Mm, that's a good, yeah. Right? It's a good way to look at it. Yeah. The answer no, is they both have a legitimate claim to being Latina, right? You can't absolutely. question anybody's experience. It's like, you know, we do that a lot with blacks, right? Where it's like, you're a black Republican, you're not really black, blah, blah, blah. But you can't really do that with Amira Flores, right? Like she's, she's like... Mexicana, first generation, immigrant, you know, evangelical, but her evangelical Christianity, and she says this very directly, her evangelical Christianity was what brought her to Republicanism. Marnie thinks too, you read in the chat, she, as a Republican, only Republican because you're evangelical. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's overt. It's like, this is the party that is defending and protecting our church and our belief systems. The Democrats are the party that's attacking it. Like it's pretty overt. Like they pretty much say that. They do, but how do you, I guess, and this is my last question and I'll. No, no, this is good. But like what, like how do you what reconcile, do you the, how do you reconcile the racism? How do you reconcile the anti-immigration talk? How do you reconcile the fact that, you know, the 
the focus on the family guy wrote that letter about people coming from the border and and that they you know they're not culturally like us and they're bringing diseases and we can't do this like i they can't i i can't reconcile that and i'm really i i left the the church a long long time ago but you know i still my family my community like i i don't get it right there is what you just said is why you why you broke the fever it's why you got out of it is you leaving it is what made you stop thinking stop buying that right you're like i'm not i'm not buying into this i'm i'm out i'm checking out what 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 is happening i i believe and again you don't see this in catholic churches as much i'm not saying it isn't there but the catholic vote is split 60 40 60% democrat 40% republican the evangelical church, the white evangelical church is 80% Republican, 20% Democrat. So they're very different perspectives. And the Catholic church is really pretty much non-political. They adhere to that. When that does happen, you will see it becomes a big news story. A lot of evangelical churches are pretty overtly political now. Like we're, we've, we've quit giving up. We're going to take away your, your IRS tax status because if the Democrats ever tried to do that, then, oh, my God, then the then they would wake up this Leviathan and all the churchgoers would come out and be like, see the devil, the, the, the Democrats are the devil, right? So they're kind of in a box here. But the, the question you're asking is a good one, which is how do people that are brown and black, especially brown, because you don't see this in black churches, black evangelical movement, how do brown people reconcile the overt racism that they're hearing from a lot of evangelical churches and not only by you'll be okay with it but buy into it and support it like a myra flores how does that happen and the answer really comes down to this perception of and this uh, desire to be white meaning american i want to be fully accepted some of the most patriotic americans are the most recently migrated you ever notice that People who migrated here and are sworn in as citizens and they've got their flag, those, they're oftentimes the ones who are putting out their flags and, and waving them in front of their house, proving to society that they're American. I'm overcompensating to show that I belong here, that I'm American. I'm going to get as jingoistic and patriotic as I possibly can to overly demonstrate that I am American, that I'm not this ethnic group that I am becoming white. I'm becoming one of you, I'm doing my best here. So accept me, take me, right? That's what that is. That's what that is. Because when you, when you hold up, I mean, I, I, this, this was a, there's a lot of research done on this, most of which I've read during the Trump years on how you reconcile that. And as I mentioned in the early part of this monologue here, there's very few things as powerful as religious identity. It is literally the existential view of yourself in the universe. It is so powerful that of course politicians are gonna freaking take advantage of that. They've been doing it ever since we created governments, right? It's why, I, one of the reasons I got into politics, I was fascinated by, by, by these old conflicts in Europe. And I was like, how did these guys like get on a horseback and give these speeches and convince these guys to take an ax and go and die. 
right? Like, how do you give such a good speech that you can get hundreds of people to run down a field and start hacking at other people with swords and knives and axes? I mean, how brutal is that? And die and be willing to die for my king or my country or whatever. And the answer almost always comes back to religion, right? Those people are trying to get rid of our religion, which means they're trying to get rid of not just you, they're trying to get rid of your children and the history of your ancestors. That religion is the tie, it is the existential tie that human beings have that, that, that crosses generations. It's that existential view that we have. Sorry if I'm kind of going on a little bit long here, but that is that is a beautiful power and it's a freaking dangerous power. And if it's used poorly, it can it and, and a lot of wars, a lot of death, a lot of carnage have resulted out of it. I'm not saying there aren't have been a lot of beautiful, kind things that have come out of it too. It's just you know, it's it's how it's it's like any power. It can be used for good or bad. And religion is is one of those things. But we are in a time right now where there's a huge amount of foreign influence being dumped into evangelical churches around the world to drive religious extremism, not necessarily for your faith or to practice it as Christ would, but to defend it against the infidels and the pagans who are attacking us and our way of world and our way of life as a political, as a crass political instrument. I think one of the most significant threats to democracy in the world today is the rise of Christian nationalism. And it's not just an American phenomenon. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And, and I care about this because I, you know, I didn't care so much until I had children and it's, it's different now. So yeah, well, let's keep in touch. I mean, I appreciate your questions. And again, these are the topics that I, I write on. I will be, I will be addressing evangelical Christianity in the book very, very um, uh, acutely because I'm concerned about it. And I, I don't say that as a pejorative on any religion or faith. I'm concerned because politics is so seeped into the Protestant community, evangelical community in the United States, but all over the world, that it's creating this dangerous dynamic, which is threatening the stability um, of the country. Thank you. You bet. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Laura, you're up. Hi, Mike. Um, thanks so much for going this long with us and giving us all this fascinating information. Sure. Kind of as a follow-up to... Um, this draw of, 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 of Hispanics into evangelical um, Protestant religions and that this notion that they, it, it's really a, a, a form of passing. They, they want to be white. They want to be in the club and be, and be the, one of the cool kids. And I completely agree with that. But I'm also wondering whether part of it is the messaging, whether this, this has a tie-in to also the mainstream religions losing Hispanics, particularly the Catholic Church, losing Hispanics that are middle class, blue collar, lower class, certainly the immigrants coming over now. You know, if you're if you're upper middle class or middle class and your family has been Catholic since forever, you, you have no reason to leave the church. The church has given you what it needs. Culture is giving you've got your community around you. But if you're a blue collar Catholic, you know, a, and and I've been I'm Catholic my whole life, like you, Jesuit, 
education and things like that. So I get it. I'm there. But I can see that other people, what would the church have to offer them when, if you go to this mega church, the prosperity gospel kicks in. So not only is it you can be white, you can be white and rich. The, the church, the Catholic church, the Presbyterian church, the Methodist church, nobody's got that message. It's incredibly um, compelling and almost addictive. I'm going to give these people thing. I'm going to be all into the message because at the end of the day, I'm going to be rich too. I mean, how do we combat that? You know, there's, there's nothing more American than that. True. True. There's nothing more than American than going to a mega church and hearing prosperity gospel, which is really, and like I said, when, when there is no cultural or ethnic anchor, Mm-hmm. And you live in orange, the suburbs and you go on Sunday because what else are you going to do, right? You kind of have this sense yeah. of, I don't know who I am and what I'm doing. So let's go to this mega church. You drive into this mega church and you go in and they give you a little bit of God. They give you the righteousness and then they give you the material stuff tied in with it. And which is all trying to solve this inner wound mm-hmm. and this lack of relationship that people have because those ethnic ties are gone. And I'm not saying that it's a uniquely, yes, I am saying that's, it's not a uniquely American phenomenon, but it's, it's pretty close. Brazil, you would see stadiums full of, of kind of these preachers with the prosperity gospel too now. Like right, it's become, right. this consumerism is, 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 is trying to solve, S-A-L-V, solve the yes. wounds that, that the message of Christ used to for people religiously but the, to me it's it's like the height of americanness it's like let's 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 tell them that not only are they going to be saved and whatever who really cares about that you're going to be rich which is what's really important. which is what's really drawing them there if, so if, if i've got to go you know that's why you see i'm always puzzled you see some of these j6 guys with hispanic last names I, yeah. and i'm people well, <laughs> you know, manitos. when the revolution comes you're going to you. be in the inner cabal i don't care what you did on j6 they're coming exactly that's what i that's that's exactly right and what i'll say about that is this is we have to remember um i i i mentioned aoc and myra flores and i'm the, in san antonio by the way just to give you kind of context of where you're in san antonio yeah okay yeah. Okay. Good. That's helpful. That actually tells me a lot. So let, and, let me. And let like me 10th or 12th generation, we got here before yeah. the border moved. We didn't move. So right. There's a great book actually. If you're, this is a great book. It's called Mexican Americans: The Ambivalent Minority. I love I, that. I Thank first you. read this book in uh, 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm using it a lot now. But it's, it's, a, it's a case study on Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles versus San Antonio and gotcha. why and the difference. It's really, really, really good. I think you'd love it. But anyway, Thank what, you. what I wanted to say is we have to remember racially Hispanics are white. Right. From a political perspective, by overwhelming majorities, Hispanics will say that they are just like every other American, which means essentially they're leaning towards like towards whiteness. Mm-hmm. And, and but, but but let's also be let's also be really honest about this. We get to choose how Latino we want to be or not be. So true. 
we get and our choose. children even more so, you know, I mean, it's, we, we get to choose how minority we want to be. There's people that have known me my whole life. that are like, I didn't realize you were Mexican. Exactly. And that's fair, right? Because, yeah. because we get to choose that and that's both good and bad mm-hmm. because that power can be used for bad too. It can be used to be a proud boy, right? To find leverage right. there and it could be George Santos. Well, you mm-hmm. literally are like, oh, use my Mexicanness to advance your horrible right-wing, nutty, crazy-ass agenda. I'll be that guy. I'll do yeah. that. And there's there's going to be a lot of that increasingly, okay? And I'm not saying, because I don't believe for a second, that any Latino Republican is like that. I'm Latino Republican. I've never been like that, okay? Right. So, but but I am, I'm also not denying that it's there, because it sure as hell is. But Latinos also, you can lean into that identity more and accentuate that and see the world that way and have a political perspective as an aggrieved racial minority, too. Mm-hmm. And that's what the left does. And the left is hurting itself because most two thirds of Latinos don't subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's keeping Latinos together, ethnically united politically is right wing guys attacking the community and people going, okay, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, right, yeah. like, I know that's like, I'm with you. Like, yeah, we need a, more border security. Mm-hmm. We can't be letting somebody undocumented in. But when you say it, I know what that tone means. Like, yeah. I know how you mean it. I mean, those like, people, I, I know what those people mean. I know yeah. exactly. Like, we all know, we've all heard that, right? Mm-hmm. We've all, we've all heard those people talking to us like that. And, and and that's Republicans. I'm just right. be, be straight. That's most Republicans. It's not that I disagree with you on policies. It's not that I don't like Republican ideas. I just don't like Republicans. Exactly. And that's what that is what has kept so many in the Democratic Party. What I'm saying is that's changing now, mm-hmm. especially with more Latino candidates who are standing up and going, no, 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 no. We can't have open borders. We get this Latinx stuff. We can't have these environmental policies that are killing people in the oil patch. You see this out in the RGV. We can't yeah. have this. We can't have this. And more and more Latinos are like, oh, oh well, wait a second. Brother's one of us. Sister's mm-hmm. one of us. Doesn't have to be a big shift. Two or three point shift in the communities around San Antonio. Yeah. You start to see an impact. Start to you see do. a change. You do. Yeah. Anyway, you great do. questions. Oh, thank you so much, Mike. Good talking yeah. to you. Guys, I honestly, the truth of the matter is I did not think that we would go this long on this topic. So I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I think our group has stayed pretty big. A lot of our kind of core audience, I want to say thanks for that. We've gone on a long time. It's about 7.15 here on this side of the country. So it's 10.15 on the East Coast. We're going to wrap it up here. I'm going to say thank you again for joining us on Colin. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you could do me a favor and share it out there on social media, I'd appreciate it. We'll be back next Wednesday. Any topic ideas, shoot them uh, out to me. I'm going to be thinking a lot about this stuff for a while. It's going to be probably three or four more months of just being completely buried. But until then, thanks for your support. Thanks for joining us. And we'll